Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks to Brother Grant and to Annalise as well for leading us in worship. We, of course, missed the beautiful playing of Miss Diana, but she will be back with us next week. And we also missed your shining faces last week. As we were providentially iced out last Sunday, our own Mike Carr is a lineman, and I prayed for him multiple times this week and last week for his safety. But we are grateful. We are thankful for the technology that allows us to reach to you in your homes. And we know that online church is not church, not by any sense, but when hindered, we are grateful to be able to provide that for our people. Please be in prayer as well. I was made aware this week that a dear brother in the Lord, a pastor in Edmonton, Canada, was arrested this week and quite dramatically for failure to submit to the state's very onerous, unbiblical, and largely illegal worship requirements for churches. I've watched the godly humility with which this brother has led his flock through such a season, joyfully willing to be arrested for his convictions. These attacks on the church are nothing new. They're nothing new, though this is the first time that these attacks are cloaked in the guise of very selective science and exploiting fear of a virus. Truth must guide our lives as Christians. The most loving thing you can do for our brothers and sisters in Christ is to be truthful with them. Even when it defies everything they're hearing on their evening news from the media, in the workplace, or yes, even from a .gov website. Love and truth cannot be separated. They are joined at the hip. Let us be educated lovers of truth, wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Amen? Well, I'm very excited this morning to begin a two-part series entitled Saving the Sabbath. And we are hot on the heels last week of a verbal attack against Jesus and his disciples concerning the very issue of fasting by the Pharisees. Jesus flips their entire worldview on their heads. He tells them that their entire system of belief and structure is wrong. Their gospel of works righteousness, of onerous burdens, of laws and traditions, they're incompatible with the gospel of Jesus. And that through this defiled gate of law-keeping and works, one cannot find salvation. And that's a problem. Because salvation is found in no other name than Jesus Christ. Their Judaic religion was apostate from what the Old Testament commanded for those who would live righteous lives in earnest expectation for the Savior, for Messiah. Those who prided themselves in the law were as far from salvation as you could be. Jesus told them, I cannot patch. I cannot patch my gospel onto your rabbinical tradition. I cannot pour the new wine of the gospel into your dry and crumbling vessel. You can't handle it. It would burst all over the place. You need a new wineskin for the new wine. You must be made new. Or as Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. Over this two-part series that we're embarking on, we're going to witness the expectation, or the escalation rather, of this confrontation with the Pharisees to a level that will leave them plotting to kill Jesus by the beginning of chapter 3. We're going to witness Jesus putting his finger right on the sore spot. He is going to reign right on their sacred party on the Sabbath day, where they're in, where they're in all of their legalistic splendor, 
And he's going to send them into a spiral of rage against Jesus. It's exciting. So with that, let's dive in. Beginning with our text, Mark 2, verses 23 through 28. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Most merciful heavenly father, we thank you abundantly for this text. We have so much to learn here. Change our hearts, focus our minds on what you would have us know. All praise and glory, honor and dominion are yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you were to travel to Florence, Italy today, you could visit what's called the Academia Gallery, where you would have the privilege of witnessing the perfection of one of the most famous statues, perhaps in all time, of all time, Michelangelo's David. And this white marble Renaissance sculpture was created around 1501. It stands at over 14 feet tall. It is, of course, a statue depicting David from Scripture. But uniquely, David is represented as a standing male nude. That's right. He's in his polished birthday suit for all to see. And the question that hits someone looking at this, at least this is what hits me, is why? Why is David naked? Now, we know all about the event recalling David dancing unto the Lord, a bit scantily clad, but that's not what's happening here. What we're witnessing is something known as syncretism. It's a blending of two different worldviews. In this case, a blending of two religions actually gave us Michelangelo's David. At the time Michelangelo was commissioned to do this work, the Roman Catholic Church was deeply immersed and deeply influenced by Greek philosophical syncretism. Greek philosophy, which was deeply humanistic, they desired in their art to present the ideal human form, right? Perfection, uh, which bordered often on even the erotic. This was very predominant. Uh, during this time period. Think about the different religious paintings and Bible scenes that you've seen from this time period that almost border on inappropriate. You're asking, why is that angel or that biblical character naked? Right? We've seen those paintings. It's called syncretism. Since the beginning of time, false worldviews have been attempting to syncretize, to amalgamate, to infiltrate, to co-opt, to mutate, to pervert that which is good. From the Old Testament, God created a nation that he would set apart for himself. Destroying the evils of syncretism was so important that God even had the Israelites wipe out and kill an entire pagan people that were living in the land of Israel in Deuteronomy 7 and 20 to ensure that they would not take on their practices. Well, sadly, Israel disobeyed. They did not kill them all, and they paid a heavy price as a nation as they fell into idol worship time and time again. 
We see today Christianity being co-opted or rebranded as it's attempted to be synchronized and syncretized with other profane worldviews. Christian yoga. What is that? That's a Hindu practice, for example. Half of modern evangelicalism is awash in what we would call Christian mysticism. They call it contemplative prayer, meditative prayer, emptying your mind with mindful breathing and listening for God to speak to you. If this sounds like Eastern meditation rituals, it's because it is. This is not fringe, saints. This is mainstream. If you have young people that you know, chances are they've been exposed to this. Bethel music, elevation worship, Jesus culture, Hillsong, the list goes on, all teach various forms of this. How about grave soaking? What? Going and laying on someone's grave to soak in their anointing. Yes, this is not fringe stuff. In fact, many of the institutions that produce the majority of mainstream worship today participate in these types of mysticism that are drawn off pagan cultures. In our text here this morning, this is precisely what has happened. To use our sculpture analogy, David was perfectly represented in the Old Testament in Scripture till the Pharisees came along and made him naked. The principle of the Sabbath was presented perfectly to God's people on Mount Sinai, given in the fourth commandment. Until the legalistic fallen hearts of man, they took it and they mutated it, they changed it, they added to it, and they made it something it was never meant to be. God gave the Sabbath to be a blessing, not a burden. That is where we find ourselves. Something beautiful and useful and godly, made profane and useless and burdensome by the acts of the Pharisees. And that brings us to our first scene, verse 23. Mark 2, verse 23. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. Well, here we need a heaping helping of historical context to grasp what is happening. We need to frame this up. Through some previous encounters with the Pharisees, we've had just a taste of what these guys are like. We've gotten an inkling of their legalism, but that was nothing compared to this. The Sabbath was the main event. Shabbat was the, it was the, it was when the full weight of the rule books came out. The Pharisees were in all of their legalistic glory on this day. There were at least, there are at least 24 chapters in the Talmud that deal specifically with laws for the Sabbath. The Mishnah lists 39 classes of work that are considered to profane the Sabbath. Every Sabbath was the Super Bowl of legalism all around Israel. For the Pharisees, this was their day. They ruled supreme. And boy, did they love the power. Boy, did they love the control. Most legalists do. Two observances above all define Jews and set them apart from other nations. Circumcision and the Sabbath. Alfred Edersheim details some of the restrictions for the Sabbath as written in both the Talmud and the Mishnah, and they are boggling. Saddle up for this. He writes, quote, There were laws about wine, honey, milk, spitting, writing, and getting dirt off of clothes. Anything that might be contrived as work was forbidden. Thus, on a Sabbath, scribes could not carry their pens, tailors their needles, or students their books. To do so might tempt them to work on the Sabbath. For that matter, carrying anything heavier than a dried fig was forbidden. 
And if the object in question had been picked up in a public place, it must only be set down in a private place. If the object were tossed into the air, and had to, it had to be caught with the same hand that you tossed it with. To catch it with the other hand would constitute work and therefore be a violation of the Sabbath. No insects could be killed. No candle or flame could be lit or extinguished. Nothing could be bought or sold. No bathing was allowed since water might spill onto the floor and that would wash the floor. That would be work. No furniture could be moved inside the house since it might create ruts in the dirt floor that constituted plowing. An egg could not be boiled even if all one did was place it in the hot desert sand. A radish could not be left in salt because it would become a pickle and pickle constituted work. Sick people were only allowed enough treatment to keep them alive. Any medical treatment that improved their condition was considered work and therefore prohibited. It was not even permissible for women to look in a mirror since they might be tempted to pull out any gray hairs they spotted. Sorry, hon. Nor were they allowed to wear jewelry, since jewelry weighs more than what? A dried fig. Other activities that were banned on the Sabbath included washing clothes, dyeing wool, shearing sheep, spinning wool, tying or untying a knot, sowing seed, plowing a field, reaping a harvest, binding sheaves, threshing wheat, grinding flour, kneading dough, hunting a deer, or preparing its meat. End quote. Can we get a taste for what the common Jew lived under here? the very laws they were to keep was more labor than labor itself. There are many more laws which will manifest themselves in the coming verses here, but let's look to the first phrase Mark uses here in verse 23. First phrase, and it happened, and it happened. Now there's a lot packed into those three little words. First, it's laced with a bit of irony, and it just so happened. We know there's no such thing as a coincidence. In the life of the believer. There's certainly no such thing as coincidence where Jesus is concerned and his mission is concerned. So we have a bit of tongue in cheek happening here from Mark. But Matthew also gives us an account of this scene. And when talking about this scene, he uses this word time and he uses the word kairos. When speaking about the coming together of the Pharisees and Jesus, he uses the word kairos. Now, 10 bonus Bible points for anyone who remembers the usage in kairos. Remember, we're not talking about the time on a clock. It's a word that's pregnant with meaning and intentionality. It's an opportune time. We have kairos moments in our life all the time. Divine appointments. Are you looking for them? Are you watching and expecting them? And it happened that I ran into an old friend at the store. And it happened that I kept running into the same woman. And it happened that. And it happened that. That's kairos. That's what that is. Your Kairos moments are everywhere in your life. Watch for them. There are no coincidences in the life of a believer. None. And if we internalize that, saints, everything takes on significance. Everyone we meet, everywhere we go. So let's understand this usage here. And it happened. Meaning this encounter was planned before the ages began. In the fullness of time, he's sovereign over it all. What happens next in our text that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Stop. Stop right there, because Houston, we have a problem. Right out of the gate, we have a problem. You see, included in that lengthy list of rules in the Talmud 
was the amount of distance a person, allowed, person was allowed to travel on the Sabbath. You were never allowed to travel more than 3,000 feet from your home on the Sabbath or take more than 1,999 steps. Absolute fact. Where did Jesus live? Capernaum. With who? With Peter. Where's Peter's house? Is it in the fields or is it closer to the sea? Closer to the sea. So is Jesus keeping this rule? Not likely. Not likely. And no need. Show me chapter and verse for 1,999 steps for 3,000 feet. Nowhere. We rest on sola scriptura. Scripture alone. Show us a place in Scripture where Jesus appeals to man-made laws or traditions as an authority. Nowhere. Jesus says it is written. It is written. Scripture alone. So they're passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, walking through the fields in this time like this. It was very common. There weren't a lot of roads and you could walk along basically trodden paths through fields. Nevertheless, this is a traveling violation. Number one. Now, let's see exactly what these rule breakers are doing. Back to our text here. Verse 23. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. A few things to observe here. Because the disciples were able to pluck the heads and rub it in their hands and eat the heads, we're talking about wheat or barley here. And if it's ripe enough to eat, which they were doing, this happened around an April to May time frame. So this is early summer. I want you to be able to visualize this in your head. But a question floating on the top here. Are the disciples stealing someone's, someone's grain? Walking along in someone's field, just plucking and eating handfuls. Were they stealing? Of course not. We follow just laws. We're not rebels against duly given laws, which the Old Testament was for them. That was a duly given law. In Deuteronomy 23, 25, Moses writes, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. There you go. They are following the correct law for this time. Christianity is not a worldview of rebellion and independence. We are dependent creatures on our Heavenly Father who submit and obey to what we see in Scripture. So they are following the law here. They're not stealing, nor, as we've said, did they break any law found in Scripture. And as it happened, as it so happened... Who, pray tell, is following them like a bunch of paranoid legalists? Verse 24. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, the first question here, what on earth are the Pharisees doing here? Notice the Pharisees only approached them with a food violation, not with a 1,999-step violation. Why? Because they're breaking it too. Now, I need to caveat this. There is a way that Pharisees had devised to get around this law. The day before Sabbath, you could go and drop food 3,000 feet from your home. That food now becomes an extension of your home so you can walk another 3,000 feet. But the Pharisees would not have known the field Jesus would, have be, would be walking in in advance. So this was likely just some good old-fashioned hypocrisy. The law for thee, but not for me, right? Or they justify it. 
Well, we're just keeping the flock safe from this false teacher. We need to watch him, see what he's up to. We know from this reading that the Pharisees were haunting Jesus' steps. And what do they say? Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? This betrays their hearts. Lawful according to whom? According to them. We are Lord of the Sabbath. Our day, our rules. Because it sure is not in Scripture. None of these rules and regulations are in Scripture. This is their own religion. Conceived, born, bred in the hearts of men. This is not from the mouth of God. The word they begin with here is look. Look. Now this is actually an imperative by the Pharisees. It's a command. They're saying, hey, pay attention to us. Take heed. It's a condescension. It's not a question, as it seems. It's an accusation. The tense and the context for this Greek word, look, it's dripping with condescension and pride. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The usage for this word not here, it's absolute negation. Absolute negation, meaning there's no room for compromise here. This is absolutely fixed. This is not lawful. On the Sabbath, period, dot. Now, it was actually a five-part accusation by the Pharisees. First, the disciples were reaping. They were reaping. They were picking the grain. They were sifting. They were removing the shells and husks. They were threshing. They were rubbing the husks together to separate the chaff from the grain. And they were winnowing. They were throwing the husks away. And add all this together, and what are they doing? They're preparing food. Also, against the law. And they aren't wrong. They are not wrong. The Talmud says, quote, in case a woman rolls wheat to remove the husks, it is considered as sifting. If she rubs the heads of wheat, it is regarded as threshing. If she cleans off the self adherences, it is sifting out fruit. If she bruises the ears, it is grinding. If she throws them up in her hand, it is winnowing. End quote. This is the basis of their selective outrage, not their own hypocrisy that they were 3000 feet from their home as well, but that they were reaping, sifting, threshing and winnowing. They came preparing food by eating some heads of grain. Are we beginning to get a sense of these guys? While it's almost amusing to come down so hard on the Pharisees and to laugh at some of their ridiculous approaches to to life and to religion. The truth is we all have our inner Pharisee. We all have areas where we have religion without relationship. And it is a foul thing. We are never further from the heart of Christ as believers than when our inner Pharisee comes out. The heart of the Pharisee, excuse me, the heart of the Pharisee here is not to instruct or to shepherd. It is driven by pride, by ignorance, and a growing animosity for this man called Jesus. J.C. Ryle calls legalism the resource of an uneasy conscience. And if our, inner le- if our inner legalism does not comport with Scripture, saints, if we have added to Scripture as the Pharisees did, and we follow it, and we serve it religiously, what is it now? It's an idol. It's a false god, a false standard, and we worship and serve it so well, don't we? This is a small microcosm of what the world does with Jesus or what it does with spirituality in general. They make their own God. They set it up. 
They figure out the dogmas of it. They write the commandments in their own heart. They systematize it. Now they've fashioned a religion, a set of beliefs, a God. They serve that God. And lucky for them, this is a God is very accepting of all sin. Doesn't require anything of them. None of this God's rules are difficult. In fact, they happen to comport just perfectly to my own sin desires. And he would never send anyone to hell. He's far too loving for that. Lucky, isn't it? We fashion a God after our own desires and makings, then we serve that God. We may even call him Jesus, so we have a bunch of other people to hang out with on a Sunday. But if it's not the Jesus of Scripture, it's not Jesus Christ. It's an idol. 99% of idols are not a wooden statue on a stand. They are idols of the heart. They are false gods. We wake up. We make up to comfort us in our sin. I get a God who allows me to live however I want to live and loves me just the way I am. This is idolatry. In truth, saints, you may come to Christ in any state, in any condition. You may come as you are, but you cannot stay that way. This is no different than the Pharisees here. They have made an idol out of their system, out of their laws, and they expect everyone else to follow this idol. And they may have started out well. They may have. This budding young Pharisee student, he may have sincerely desired to know God, to study his ways. They may have been like the church in Galatia to whom Paul writes, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you understand what he's saying there? You started off well. Now you're trying to finish your race with works. You're trying to syncretize Christianity and old Judaism or apostate Judaism. It won't work. It will not work. Jesus' response now is one more brick in the wall building towards Mark 15 where the crowds will cry out, incited by these very Pharisees, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus responds, verse 25 and 26. I'll read them as one. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need? And he and his companions became hungry. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. So how does Jesus begin? Have you never read? Well, recall a few weeks ago, Jesus echoed a very similar statement that was basically the ancient equivalent of what? Go get a clue. This was almost a form of sarcasm. The same is happening here. You claim to be the high teachers of Israel and you haven't a clue. That always goes over very well. Before we get to the heart of what Jesus is referring to, we must ask a simple question. Had the Pharisees read this story? Yes, of course they had. They could quote a chapter and verse if there was such a thing then. But why does Lanesville 2021 care about that? Head knowledge alone will not save you. Someone with a head full of knowledge that does not sink down into their heart can become the most dangerous of legalists. It makes a stone cold woman and a stone cold man. Now that's not a no learning. That's not a no learning necessary. Get out of jail free card here. Not at all. In fact, to quote R.C. Sproul, there is much knowledge that can reside in your mind without making it to your heart. 
but there is no truth in your heart that did not first reside in your mind. So yes, you must learn and learn and learn. I've seen this twisted by people to say we don't need all of that learning and doctrine, just give me Jesus. With love, that is an ignorant statement. It is through doctrine that we know who He is that we might love Him more. The Pharisees have a head full of facts, but they do not grasp the meaning. For if they did, perhaps it would have changed their heart. Back to verse 25. What story is Jesus appealing to here? This comes from 1 Samuel 26, 1-6. through This story finds David in what was known as the desert fox years of David's life. When he and his men were outlaws, they were effectively banished and they were running from Saul. When you're banished and you're roaming around what is some pretty barren land, food is hard to come by. On the Sabbath, food for the priests, mainly here we're talking about 12 loaves of bread that would be put on the altar. You can read about this later if you wish in Exodus 40 and Leviticus 24. But there's much, much to glean from Jesus' usage here. First, if we look to 1 Samuel where this takes place, allow me to briefly read the exchange between David and the priest Ahimelech. The priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread if only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. The principle here is what? The priest was willing to overlook, to set aside ceremonial law for compassion. And David was willing to pursue this avenue as well, out of need. Did God punish either party for this? No, not at all. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, says the Lord. Understand this. Hear the heart of the Lord as it relates to the law. And we will hear the heart of what Jesus is saying in this wheat field. Much more is happening here as well. It's not merely a condemnation of legalism, which it, of course, is. Jesus' purpose is not merely to put the Pharisees in their place. No, this is also a messianic echo. Jesus is once again putting himself and David in the same line together. David was revered in Israel. Of course, he was the precursor to the Messiah. David was Israel's greatest king to this point, only to ever be eclipsed by Messiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, Jeremiah says, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Jeremiah 23, 5. One commentator writes, quote, the appeal to David in our passage begins to define Jesus' authority as the royal son of God anticipated since the reign of David. End quote. And I wish I could stop there, but wait, there's more. There's more. If we rotate the diamond, Matthew also records this encounter with a bit more color than Mark does. In addition to all that Jesus says here, he also says in Matthew 12, 5 through 6, same event Matthew's recording here. 
Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Well, not to exposit Matthew here because we're in Mark, but this gives us color and will even further help explain the more violent response that the Pharisees are going to have next week. Two huge statements here on Matthew's recording. One, the Pharisees are hypocrites. They're hypocrites. Dr. John MacArthur writes, quote, by pointing to the example of the priests, Jesus demonstrates the inconsistency of the Pharisees' own legalistic standard. Each Sabbath, the ministering priests were required to light fires for the altar and slaughter animals for sacrifice. These activities clearly violated the rabbinic restrictions for what was permissible on the Sabbath. Yet what do we see? The Pharisees were exonerated. The priests of any, they exonerated the priests of any wrongdoing. Even under the Pharisees' own hyper-legalistic standard, some Sabbath violations were allowable and even considered necessary. And how frustrating can double standards be? We see it in our current country and politics, double standards that are enough to make you laugh or cry. Jesus is saying you're missing it, and you're missing it intentionally. Peter uses the term willingly ignorant. One professor said they are willingly ignorant, which in the Greek means they're dumb on purpose. You know that there's no, you know that there is room in the law. You know that this is not the intent of the law, for you exercise it every Sabbath for the priests. You give clemency to who you like. Nothing new under the sun. The second part of Matthew's recording here ties into our last two verses quite well. Jesus said in Matthew, but I say to you that something greater then the temple is here. If you ever run into someone who claims that Jesus never claimed to be God in the Bible, rest well assured they have not read their Bible or they have read it without desiring to see. This is an overt claim of divinity here. It's not veiled. It's not hidden. It's not cryptic. I'm greater than the temple. If the temple represented God and where he dwells, who is the only one greater than the temple? God himself. That leads into our next verse, which is a remarkable piece of scripture. Back to Mark, verse 27. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Let's stop there first to digest this, what this means. Why did God give the Sabbath? It was a day given for rest that we might focus our attention and reverence toward God. It was given as, as a rest, as a reset, as a pause. It was given that man might have refreshment from the labor of the week. In all of that, what do you hear? Who was Sabbath made for? It was made for man. It was made to refresh and rejuvenate your spirit. This creation of the Sabbath was not an entity to be served. It was created to serve. Once again, the Pharisees' worldview is flipped on its head. Down is up and up is down with these guys. You're completely missing the point of the Sabbath. Sabbath is a gift. It is a kind gift from the Father to His children. And you've perverted it. It's gone from intending to relieve your beasts of burden to making you a beast of burden. It was meant to give life, not sap it. 
Legalism dries up everything around it. It fills up people's packs with rocks and says, go carry it. Go earn God's favor. Borrowing from the title of our last message, these are indeed irreconcilable gospels. Finally, in the coup de grace here of our scene, Jesus goes in for the final blow against this apostate system of works that had taken over the Sabbath from God's people. Verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is a brand new pronouncement in Scripture. This is a brand new title. Never before. This is a new title that Jesus gives. This is yet another progressive revelation Jesus is giving to those around him about who he is. Jesus is not acting as a free agent that came to abolish the Sabbath and shake up the system to be a rebel as he's so often depicted. He's not a radical. He was Lord. He was sovereign. This is exactly what he is saying here. This Sabbath you claim to be in absolute authority... I'm Lord over it all. I'm Lord over it all. That's a bombshell. Jesus just went straight for the sore spot. What they prided themselves in, their Super Bowl just got rained out and they will be furious. If it is God himself who established the Sabbath, God who wrote the fourth commandment, and you say that you're Lord of the Sabbath, who are you saying you are? I'm God. I am God. If we combine this with Matthew's account, in two ways, Jesus proclaims without veiled words that he is God. I am Lord of the Sabbath. This system of laws you you have been fine-tuning and that you've been tweaking for years and years. It's all wrong. Jesus asserting himself as Lord over their most prized day, the Sabbath. This was a step too far. He was not merely walking on their turf and crashing their party. Jesus walked into the throne room and he sat down. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the righteous branch that will be raised up after David. This race that we are running, saints, it is a race of grace. It is not one of works and of rules. We obey God's law because Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. That's why we do it, because we love him. Keeping rules for the sake of keeping rules does not march you down the path of becoming more like Jesus. It pulls you away from him. As always, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Why do we do what we do? What is the heart? Are there idols in there that need to be dethroned? Have we made a system for ourselves that we need to lay down? May the Holy Spirit show us our inner Pharisee when it rises in our thoughts and in our attitudes. We put it down and we surrender it to the only one who is indeed Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you that you gave yourself a new title today. That you are Lord of the Sabbath. That you reign over all worldly systems and inventions made by man. 
Lord, we thank you that you have brought us today together today on this Sabbath. That you have shown us freedom and life and liberty that are found only in you alone. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.